The church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Days after Christmas and we were sharing how our Christmases went. And so I reported back and I said in that conversation, my wife won the prize this year. She got me the best present ever. I totally wasn't expecting it and I absolutely love it. I said, I'm a big fan of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Now, anybody who knows me well or has known me for some time, this is almost an unhealthy obsession. Like, I, I really, really think a lot of, of Fred Rogers. And so my wife got me this. I pull up my phone and I showed them a picture because they cut me off and said, oh, I love Fred Rogers. I grew up watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I love Mr. Rogers. Man, I could tell you all the characters. I absolutely love that show. And when I showed them this picture, I was like, well, can you believe she got me this? And they just kind of had this look on their face. They looked at it. And I've never felt so disappointed. They didn't recognize what this was. And I said, do you remember Handyman Negri who worked for King Friday the 13th? This is Handyman Negri. He wore the blue jumpsuit in the neighborhood of make-believe, and he was, you know, we called on to fix things. He worked for King Friday the 13th and wore a hat that had the Roman numerals for King Friday the 13th. I understand this is some insider baseball, but I said to them, like, look, I'm more than a fan. Like, I, I really, I'm a follower. I'm a true disciple of Mr. Rogers. They're like, yeah, I am too. And I was like, get behind me, Satan. You are not... Like, stop trying to convince me if you don't know this little historical nugget about Mr. Rogers. The question that Easter poses to us after the resurrection of Jesus is a similar kind of question. Will we be a fan of Jesus along with the whole multitudes, or are we going to make that one degree shift to becoming a follower of Jesus? This is a question that's posed over and over in the Gospels. Now, I'll admit that it's not phrased this way. You can't read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John and find this quote which says, will you be a fan or follower of Jesus? But if you're reading between the lines in the stories, it's a recurring question that's posed to the people who follow him. For instance, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has been baptized. He goes through 40 days of temptation, goes back to his hometown up near Galilee, goes into the synagogue, opens the scroll, reads from the prophet Isaiah this really profound text about how he's come to proclaim release to the captives and, and uh, riches to those who are poor and liberation for those who are enslaved. And then says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And sits down. Total mic drop moment. And everybody there begins to kind of whisper. And the people are like, been fulfilled today in our presence. Isn't that the carpenter's kid? He's from my hometown. There is no way that he actually is a person he's claiming to be. And those who might have been his fan refused to be in that moment. Some of them, his followers. And they take Jesus out and try to throw him off of a cliff. And Jesus escapes from them. A lot of people don't, don't remember that story. There's another instance when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He's got all the wealth in the world. But he's a devoted person religiously. And he asks Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And the young guy says, well, I've done all that. Is there anything else? 
And Jesus may be sensing that in his sense of self-righteousness, there might be another journey for him to take. He said, sure. One more thing. Sell all the stuff you have. That which you hold on to for your security. Sell that. Give it to the poor. And then come follow me. And the scripture says, the young man who clearly had been a fan of Jesus walked away depressed, discouraged. Couldn't do it. Then there's a story. When Jesus, in John 6, this is maybe my favorite example, Jesus feeds the multitude, thousands of people. Incredible miracle. Right after that, he walks on the water. Another miracle. Surely the word had been spreading. Like, my goodness, this person has power to do things we've never seen. And the multitudes come to Jesus. And now that they've seen a couple of really impressive, mesmerizing moments from Jesus, Jesus says, I am the bread of heaven. And unless you eat of the bread of heaven, symbolically saying, unless you're willing to follow me completely, you will have no inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. And somebody actually says in John chapter 6, you can look it up. This is a hard teaching. Does anybody actually follow this? And John says, at that moment, large numbers of his disciples deserted him. Jesus has a whole bunch of fans, but doesn't have as many followers. Think about it in your life and in mine. When Jesus says, you know, you should love your spouse. You really should. You should love them and be faithful to them. We all nod in agreement and think, that's a good teaching. I'll buy into that. But then Jesus starts meddling and says, by the way, it's not just physical acts of adultery that I care about. It is when you lust in your mind after someone else. You let your imagination run wild. You are committing adultery against your spouse just by doing that. And we're like, well, now, wait a minute. Don't take away all the fun here. There's a playground in my mind. And I'd like to just. Or maybe when Jesus says. You should love other people. And we think that's great. We should love other people. And then Jesus says something about money. Says you can't love money and God. And where your treasure is. That's where your heart will be. In other words. That which is most a priority to you. Is where your money will go. And you imagine the people hearing that thinking. So what you're telling me is that I could look at my expenses over the last 90 days and I could tell what it is that I'm worshiping? Jesus, don't start meddling in my personal finances. Or maybe in Matthew 25, when Jesus has really heavy, hard words and says to his disciples, when I was a stranger, you didn't welcome me in. Stranger being another biblical word for immigrant. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. And when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. And we immediately begin to think like, what Jesus, you're stepping on partisan political toes here. Friends, this is going to be a challenging series. And I don't think it's my opinions imposed on the scriptures. I think it's the scriptures. Jesus has all the fans that the world can handle. But when it comes to truly following him, some of the fans begin to fall back and recede into the distance. For some people, the first step of moving from fan to follower is an intellectual movement. It's a challenge for people to accept cognitively that their faith can be greater than their doubt. In other words, they can accept that Jesus is a good teacher. They like what he says, but is he really the risen son of God? And doubt seems to get in the way. I wish this morning that we had the seismograph print off from the small earthquake that happened when Jesus was resurrected, you know, 
that we could look at it and say, oh my goodness, on Easter morning, 33 AD, there was an event in southeast Jerusalem, and this must have been the resurrection of Jesus. But we don't have that scientific evidence. We don't have body cams from the guard, tomb, the tomb guards who were there and saw the stone roll away in a flash of light and felt the ground shake. We don't have that. In fact, we don't have a single eyewitness account of this moment. The moment where Jesus Christ, who'd been dead as a doornail for two days since Friday night, through the power of his Father and the Holy Spirit, the blood started pumping through his veins. The synapses in his brain began to fire and Jesus in one moment went <clears throat> and came back from the dead. Nobody was there for that precise moment. Instead, what we get in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John are different ways that the resurrected Christ appears to people. Not a single one of them, by the way, goes and finds him. They go to the tomb. Nobody happens upon Jesus while he's getting dressed or drinking coffee. Jesus appears and comes to them. And in John's gospel, there are four distinct ways that I want to offer you today as ways of encouragement to help you realize God understands that it is sometimes a temptation in the human heart to doubt. And God comes to us in a way that we exist in this room. All of you made your way here. Some of you came through different doors to arrive in this room. It's the same with confessing faith in the resurrected Christ. We don't have time today to read the fullness of these stories from the scriptures, but they're familiar to you and I'll be retelling them. The first one is when Peter gets up with the other disciple and sprints their way to the tomb. Now, Peter gets up first and makes it out the door, but the younger disciple, who's younger and more spry, beats him in the foot race to the tomb. I've wondered if Peter was just kind of shouting, hey, nobody's going to know you got there first. And then they finally make it, and the younger disciple turns around and says, everybody's going to know that I got here first. And they look into the tomb, and something amazing happens in that story. It says the other disciple, look, disciple looks, sees it's empty, and he believed. Based on negative proof, he hasn't seen the body. Somebody could have just moved it. But no, in that moment, he just believed. There are some people, perhaps in the way that God made them, perhaps in the way they were raised, or maybe in the human genome, they got the combination of chromosomes that make it easy for them to just be people who simply believe. My mother's one of those people. Some of you have or will meet my mother one of these days. My mother is just a very gentle soul. She has never made an enemy throughout her whole life. If she had an enemy, it was because of someone else's problem, not hers. She lives her life with decency and kindness. Um, I wish I were more like her in many ways. And my mother is a person of simple faith. I remember asking her once in early middle school at some age, Mom, when did you get saved? When did you first confess, confess your faith in Jesus Christ? And my mom said, you know, I don't remember. My parents took me to church from the earliest age I can remember. And it's all, just always kind of believed that, that our faith is true. And she lives it. And don't, by the way, mistake simplicity with a lack of depth. She's a praying woman. And she trusts in a God that she cannot see to look out for her and those that she loves. Some people are just wired that way to simply look and believe. But not everybody. 
Some people are like Mary Magdalene, who are at the tomb with Peter and the other disciple, but sit down and sit down in the fog of the morning in the midst of her own tears and just waiting for the Messiah, wondering how the story's going to end. And then a figure approaches her and they say, woman, why are you crying? And she says, well, they've taken my Lord, my master, and I don't know where they've laid him. She thinks he's the gardener. Maybe it's still dark outside. Maybe Jesus has a hood over his face and the shadows prohibit her from seeing. Maybe she's just got tears in her eyes. I don't know. But the moment that she believes is the moment when the resurrected Christ says, Mary. He speaks her name and in a moment of personal encounter, the truth of the resurrection becomes clear and overwhelming to her. Some people have moments of personal religious encounter that totally seismically shift their perspective in the world. And when they try to tell these stories about how I was whatever age old and God spoke to me, there's a little bit in us that says, like, God spoke to you. What do you mean when you say that? God's never spoken out loud to me like God speaks. It's always difficult for people to tell those stories in ways that we just say, well, that makes total complete sense. I've had the same exact experience. Because they are intensely subjective and personal. I can remember, it was the spring, maybe late winter, February or so of 2003 or 2004, when I was just about to graduate from college and I was thinking in my mind that I might, you know, apply to law school and take a track toward practicing the law and so on. And I don't know what made me that particular night, but I got in my car just to go for a drive. 22 years old, just went for a drive around Nashville. I had a favorite route that would take me up I-65 and around the east side of the city. You could see the Titan Stadium there lit up at night and the Batman building in the background. It was really beautiful. And I was listening to some instrumental music. It was just kind of a quiet, reflective moment. And it wasn't an audible voice. But there was such a moment of communication that seemed like directly from God where for the first time I really had the idea, maybe I'm supposed to be a minister. Wasn't my plan. Wasn't interested at all. Hadn't mentioned it once to the career counselor. And there it was. And I couldn't shake it. And it was intensely real and personal to me, like the presence of God was in that car somehow. I felt like I needed to make some decisions based upon it. Sometimes the risen Christ comes to people in a uniquely and intensely personal and even private way. But not everybody. Some people, it's a third way. And it's the way that we hear about when Jesus appears to the disciples on the afternoon of his resurrection for the first time. Doors are locked, they're huddled in fear, and there's Jesus. And Jesus does some interesting things. He shows them the wounds, his body. And remember just a few days prior, he had sat down at the Passover meal and said, Hey, eat this bread, this represents my body, which will be broken for you. Drink this cup, which is my blood, which is shed for you. And he shows them his wounds. It's almost like a metaphysical teaching about the nature of Holy Communion. And then the scripture says that he breathes upon them the Holy Spirit and says, receive the Holy Spirit. It's the same kind of language that we hear about at baptism, that the Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus and upon those who confess their faith in baptism of Jesus Christ. And then Jesus says, look, you have the power to forgive other people as I have forgiven you, so you can forgive other people. 
it's almost like Jesus is conducting an impromptu surprised worship service. Communion, baptism, reconciliation, forgiveness, confession. And those disciples believe. And some people come to faith with other Christians gathered for worship and it surprises them. Sometimes through the ordinary singing of hymns and hearing a word taught, uh, giving an offering, saying a prayer, greeting other Christians, receiving communion. Sometimes in those ordinary things, people just have an aha moment. About 12 years ago in Gainesville, Florida, where I was working on staff at First United Methodist Church, the senior pastor there uh, who uh, belonged to the uh, Circle K Club, just kind of you know, making presence in the community and so on, befriended an attorney in town who was of a similar age named Peter. Peter, who had been raised in the church, had not spent almost 30 years in the church. He wasn't antagonistic toward it, just never really got back into it and wasn't very interested. And the pastor just said, look, why, why don't you go on us at church? We're just right here around the corner. We'd love to have you. And Peter surprisingly said, sure, we'll be there. And the next Sunday, he showed up. And while they were standing and singing some hymn, How Great Thou Art, or It Is Well With My Soul, Come Now Found of Earth, some hymn, the Spirit of God spoke to Peter and he stood there and just wept tears. And you'd be hard pressed to find a Sunday in that church now that doesn't have Peter sitting in it. Sometimes the risen Christ comes to people in the ordinary experiences of worship. But not everybody. There is more than one Thomas in the world. Maybe there's a Thomas here today. A Thomas who listens to their friends say that they've met the risen Christ and perhaps they want to, but it just hasn't happened for them yet. And they say, unless I get some evidence, I can't overcome my doubt. I want to offer you a word of encouragement today. When Jesus appears to Thomas, if you are a person who struggles with doubt and you've been made to feel as though doubt is a sin, I want you to notice that Jesus does not condemn Thomas. In fact, perhaps the most amazing part of this story is that behind the locked doors of doubt, Jesus Christ appears in a way that Thomas can then understand. It's okay sometimes to have doubt if we remain open to the possibility that God's Spirit may speak to us and awaken in us a fuller realization of the truth of God's work. You know, sometimes people think that doubt is the opposite of faith, but I love the statement by Anne Lamott, who says the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. There's got to be room for that which we really can't verify, but we trust and believe in. That is the nature of the Christian life. And it is through that doubt, that lust for certainty, that Christ pushes through and appears to Thomas. Our former bishop of the North Alabama Conference name is William Willimon. He was formerly the dean of the chapel at Duke University. And he had responsibilities for leading worship on Sundays. And there at the beginning of a semester a number of years ago. He noticed there was a student who would come to chapel on Sunday mornings. Several Sundays in a row. He decided after the worship service that day. He would seek that student out and say. I know you're a new first year seminary student here. Let me take you to lunch today and we'll get to know one another. And the student agreed. At lunch, Bishop Willimon asked the young man, tell me where you're from, tell me your life story. 
are you from here in the southeast? And the young man said, no, sir, I actually was born and raised in California. Uh, I was born in a kind of a depressed economic area in South L.A. I've never known my father. He's never been a part of my life. He left before I was born. And my mother, uh, she's a janitor. She cleans the local high school for a living. And I got in a lot of trouble growing up. And when I was in middle school, I broke into the high school where my mom worked. And I spray painted some graffiti on the walls. I got picked up for that and got kind of slapped on the wrist. But while I was on probation, I beat up a businessman, stole his American Express, and then moved uh, down to another city where I ran up several hundred dollars before they canceled the card. And when I ran out of money, I was forced to begin to prostitute myself on the streets. It wasn't long before I was finally picked up for the assault that I had committed, and they sent me to San Quentin, two-year sentence. I was 18 years old. I weighed 110 pounds soaking wet, and I was put in the general population and was scared to death. But there was an old man in that prison, an old prisoner serving a life sentence, who saw me and pulled me aside and kind of began to show me the ropes to keep me safe. Stay away from here. Don't go around those people. And every night before lockdown, he would pull me into his cell and make me sit on the bunk next to him. And through missing teeth and stumbling through a poor grasp of the English language and ability to read, he would read from this Gideon New Testament, these stories about Jesus. And I had no interest in that. I had no conception of the existence of God. No questions on my mind. I was totally doubtful about all of it. But he was so kind to me that I felt like I owed him the courtesy of listening. And he did that night after night for several weeks. And one night I went back to my cell. And I can't really explain this in a way that's going to seem very credible or makes a lot of sense. But it was as though the risen Christ showed up in my prison cell and convinced me that I was a sinner in need of redemption and that God had more envisioned for my life than I had ever given myself the ability or permission to believe. That was kind of a conversion moment for me and really kind of put me on a different path. It wasn't long before through my good behavior I got put on the the warden's helpers list and they began to notice my good behavior and I got paroled six months later. I got put in some kind of work release program where they had an option for you to work on your GED so I went to work on that and I got it completed and I did well enough that I could apply to a local community college that had some scholarships for people like me and I got my associate's degree and I did so well I made the dean's list that I started applying. The career counselor encouraged me to. I applied and I ended up at a school in Illinois. I finished my four-year degree. I graduated with honors. And I just never forgot that experience in prison. And I uh, applied here to Duke Divinity School, and I got a full scholarship. And so I'm going to be a Methodist preacher. Bishop Willimon said, I would pick my jaw up off the floor. He said, that is one of the most incredible conversion stories I've ever heard in my life. I, most of the people that come here or, you know, grow up to be bankers, they're boring. But, you know, you, my goodness, that, that's an incredible story. And the young man said, not bankers like you. I'm glad you defended your dad, Baker. He said, I want you to know that you can feel free to tell my story. Tell my story next spring. I know you preachers are always scrounging around for sermon illustrations, which is true. But tell my story because, you know, at the end of the day, I'm really the only proof that you've got that Easter's true. The question that Jesus poses to us in his life is are we going to be fans 
But we find the courage and the clarity to take that first step to be a follower. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you not only come full of grace, but you come full sometimes for truth. And we are forced to reckon with where we are and how much we are willing to respond to your invitation. And I'm thankful, God, that the word that is truthful is not a word of condemnation. You promise that if we really know the truth about ourselves and about our lives with you, that truth will set us completely free. The church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama, and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ.